0: I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. This morning we give attention to John 8, verse 30 through 47. John writes these words, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them truly. Truly. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever So if the son sets you free You'll be free indeed I know that you're the offspring of Abraham yet. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father They answered him. Abraham is our father Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason that you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is an interesting text. And Jesus speaks some of the most direct And most powerful and most piercing words that you hear him speak to anyone at any time recorded in the New Testament And what is particularly remarkable about these words that he speaks Is not just how direct they are it's not just how offensive they would have been to those who heard them But what I think is most astounding about what Jesus says is who he says them to you see, back in the very first verse, verse 30, it tells us that there were things that Jesus said to Jews who had believed in him. Jews who had believed in him were the recipients of this conversation. And as the conversation unfolds, you begin to, to see something is not right. Something is, is, is out, of, out of whack. At, at the beginning, we're introduced to these people as people who have believed in him. But by the time we get to the end of the passage, what is Jesus saying to them? The last words, you are not of God. And so we're faced with a challenge here. How in the world is it possible that we're introduced to a crowd of people who have believed in Jesus, but then we're told, on the other hand, after some more investigation, that these people are not of God? It is a challenge but it is one that that is made abundantly clear as we walk our way through the text. And we can summarize the theme by just simply saying this, everything that looks real is not real. Everything that gives the appearance of being genuine isn't always genuine. And you know that because you live in a world in which there are lots of things for which there is the real item and there are fakes, right? I mean, there are real diamonds and then there are diamond L's, right? Or diamondette's. Or cubic zirconium, and many a young man has uh, tried to push one off for the other, right? And to the untrained eye, you look at them side by side, and they look the same, don't they? It's nearly impossible to tell, but someone who knows how to dig a little deeper can find the truth, can't they? And they can separate the diamond from the fraud, the real from the fake. Several years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go on a vacation, and we went for a few days to New York City. Have you ever been there? Great place to visit. Wouldn't want to live there. That's my take. Um, but one of the things I remember is walking down one of those streets, and I can't remember the name of the street. If you've been there often, you'll remember it instantly. The street where there are all these, little, all these booths along the street where people are selling things like watches, right? And you can't walk down that street without somebody just trying to pull you into their shop to buy a genuine Rolex, right, for $35, I mean shop after shop after shop you can get your rolex you can get any you know uh, Hundreds of dollar brand watch thousands of dollar brand watch you can get them right there If you can haggle them down to 30 bucks sometimes And you know what you can get that rolex and you can take it home And you can put it next to a real rolex and apart from a, a trained eye who knows what to look for You know what those things do they look real they look real they look real. They even often sound real. But you know what? When you dig a little deeper, somebody who knows what to look for can easily separate the genuine watch from the fraud. Right? You understand? There's a world. You know, there there are masterpiece paintings that are worth millions of dollars, and then there are forgeries that look an awful lot like the real thing. And apart from having an untrained eye in art, uh, you and I would be fooled. We wouldn't know the difference. There's real. There's fake. There's the genuine and there's the false. If you want something fun to do on a Friday night, just go down to the mall and look at people's hair and try and figure out. Real, real. You would have to be really bored to do that, but it would be a good illustration of what I'm trying to point out. (laughs) So it doesn't surprise us that when it comes to matters of faith, that we're also going to find the same scenario playing out. That there are people who are genuinely people who walk with the Lord, who know God, people who know God, people who are, as Jesus would say, they are of God, people who are genuine, true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not going to surprise us that there are going to be counterfeits to that as well, right? Because the Bible has introduced us to the enemy of, of God and the enemy of humanity, Satan himself, and he is described as an angel of light. And a father of lies and he's one who twists the truth and he's one who, who counterfeits the genuine And so it's not going to surprise us as we navigate through the text of scripture And as we navigate through the the narrative of our lives that we're going to be introduced to people and we're going to come across the paths of people Who are the genuine real deal believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? And we're going to come across people also that are not people who claim to be people who have the right kind of conversation, the right kind of talk, people who do religious things, and on the surface, like the watches or like the diamonds or even like the hair, on the, on the surface they look real. On the surface, they're hard to distinguish one from the other. You can't deal with the surface. You have to dig below the surface, and you have to, to look for some markers with a trained eye to determine the genuine from the false, the real from the fake. And this has been a historic problem for Christianity. There have been times and seasons in the history of the church when crowds of of professing believers have have flocked to the church, who have flocked to the Lord Jesus Christ, have, have, like this crowd, have, have believed in him in some sense. But many of them are not genuine believers. And at the beginning, it's impossible to tell. I heard Billy Graham uh, quoted in an interview one time, and I don't remember the exact quote, so um, it's a loose quotation. But he was, at the later late in his life, was asked, how many people uh, do you believe, or, or what percentage of the people who come forward in invitations at your crusades turn out to be genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? And he, he, the percentage he quoted was, I mean, do you remember this, Pastor Frank? Something like, like 20% or less. And what Billy Graham was admitting is even in his ministry, in that kind of a ministry in the crusade where you're calling people towards belief and faith in Jesus Christ, and you're casting a large net that many, if not most, of those who at the beginning appear to be genuine, that is, they profess faith in Christ, turn out to be not. Turn out to be frauds, fakes, imitations. And that has been historically a problem in the, in the Christian church, and it's very difficult to sort it out. But Jesus understands this problem, and he makes clear to us that it is a real problem, and it will remain a real problem right up until the end. You get to Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus admits, he says this in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will do what? Will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not that, so, so there's a category of people who call him lord who who appear on the outside and by the profession of their mouth to be people who love him and have believed upon him who it turns out in the end or not and there's a warning and that isn't there not everyone who claims to be a christian is one we need to hear that this morning we need to believe that this morning Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13 that kind of illustrates this in more depth. In chapter 13, verses 24 and following, he says this. uh, Matthew records, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do, we, do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let them both grow until the harvest. At the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. It's an important parable that Jesus tells because it's a story that illustrates the, the same thing he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. The idea is that the world in which we live is, is full of people and people are, the, are represented by the seeds that are sown and the plants that grow up. And, and it's clear that, 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 that Christ has sown some seeds and his people grow up and they're genuine wheat. But there's an enemy who has also sowed seeds and his people are growing up. And on the surface at the outset and even... For a season as they grow, they look the same. It's hard to tell the difference one from the other. And in fact, some of that won't be sorted out until the very end. When the reapers come and gather the weeds to be bundled and burned. At the judgment. And so Jesus tells us, even at the end, there's going to be some surprise on this matter. Back in chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 22 and 23, he says this, On that day, that is that day he was talking about in that parable, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A frightening passage, in fact, isn't it? That there are going to be some who go right up to the end. Believing that they 're the real deal that they 're genuine, and if they 've believed that perhaps they 've caused others to believe that about them too, and they 're going to hear i didn 't know you you don 't belong to me. these are people who 've called him Lord, these are people in some cases who 've taught or prophesied in his name, some who 've preached, maybe even done miraculous things in his name, but don 't know him and so Jesus has been paring out this problem all throughout his ministry that Among the the field of people on the earth, in his day and in ours, there are at least two categories of people. Those who genuinely belong to him. His sheep of his pasture, they know him. He knows them. They have eternal life. They're saved. They're believers. And another group of people who are not. Maybe they think they are. Maybe they profess to be. Maybe they give the appearance that they are. But when you dig below the surface and you look with a trained eye, you find that they're frauds. So how should we, so the question then becomes, if this is true and this is the situation, how should we respond to that? How should we in the church today respond to that issue and to that problem practically? And there are a lot of different pastors who answer that in different ways. There is a, a significant segment of the pastoral world today. Uh, particularly those who find themselves in the mega church world whose answer to the problem is simply we ignore it. We just ignore that problem. We don't address that problem. It's not our concern, that problem. We just cast our net as wide and as far as we can. We simply call people, we call people to, to profess Jesus with their mouth. And from that point on, we call them all believers. And we make no effort beyond that to try and sort out the weeds from the wheat. We never challenge anybody's faith. We never challenge them to examine themselves. We never put out some criteria by which they should measure themselves and see if their profession is real or not. We just call as large of a group as we can and get them to profess with their mouth. And that's just what it is. And Jesus will sort it out at the end. On the other end of the spectrum, you've, you've got those. And by the way, and in that crowd, you never, hear, you never hear sermons on sin. You never hear sermons like Jesus preaches in this text ever. Because those kinds of messages and the kinds of things he says in John chapter 8 would weed out that crowd pretty quickly. And when your goal is to just accumulate as large of a crowd of people who profess with their mouth as possible, you just simply can't do that. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got folks who try too hard to nail this stuff down, and they narrow it down uh, to where, you know, those who are in with Christ are, you know, five. The ones who make the rules that they set. Nobody could ever be secure and live up. So somewhere in between these two poles has got to be another solution, right? There's got to be some other way to approach this. We can't, on the one hand, ignore the reality of the problem. And on the other hand, we can't narrow the scope so narrowly that nobody can ever go to bed at night knowing that they belong to Christ. So how do we run that balance? Well, I think Jesus runs the balance for us here because he doesn't ignore the problem. He's very aware of it. He confronted it often. And in this text, he confronts it. And, and, you know, whenever, the, whenever there would be crowds of people who would follow and, and believe him, we, we've seen this already a few times in John, haven't we? That he will say something or he will do something provocative or, or something particularly challenging to obey, and he will put that in front of them, and what inevitably happens is the crowd thins out. The fakes, the frauds, the counterfeits just filter out. You remember Jesus did this a couple chapters ago in chapter 6. There was a big crowd that was following him. And he turns to the crowd and he says, here, here's something for you guys to digest. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't belong to me. And that stunned them. That stunned him. And, and you know what we what were told in chapter 6, verse 66? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, that's those people, those people who believed at the beginning, many of them. What did they do? Tell me they walked away. They left. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And they said, what, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And you see, instantly Jesus puts the challenge in front of them and instantly the crowd is separated. And there are those who show themselves to be genuine Because they say, even though it's hard, we've got nowhere to go but to you. And then there's the frauds who just filter away. And Jesus thins the crowd quickly. Jesus never was interested in multiplying numbers of converts if they are not genuine believers. Never. He was never interested in just drawing a crowd of people who made a public profession with their mouth if they were not genuine. And ever when a crowd comes, you see this through John's Gospel. Whatever the crowd gathers, if Jesus senses, and he doesn't have to sense because he knows far better than we do, when he knows that that's what's going on, he instantly puts something out there that thins the crowd. And that's what happens again here in chapter 8. This group of people that in verse 30 are called those who were the many who had believed in him, who looked on the surface like a crowd of believers. Jesus confronts that. He knows their hearts. He knows that many of them are not the real deal. And so Jesus puts it right in their their face to some degree and forces them to respond. And you know what? As we look through this passage, I'm just reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, where Paul said to the Corinthians, I think the same thing that God would say to us this morning, and would have him say to us this morning, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you'll find out that we've not failed the test. There's something good about Examining ourselves whether we be in the faith There's something good about that There's something really really hard but really really good about that You see it's really good because we put ourselves to the test and at the end of the time at the end of the test If we come out on the other side and have passed the test and you know what that does to our faith It bolsters it. It strengthens it It helps us to know that we walk with the lord and to live that out in our lives But it's good to examine ourselves now Rather than wait till the end, don't you think? That we might not end up, God forbid, in that crowd who hears, away from me, I never knew you. And so Jesus here in this text confronts false belief, false disciples, fraudulent professions of faith. And he's challenging us in that area this morning too. And so what I want to do is take this conversation between Jesus and this crowd As he confronts this matter and I want to just lay out some marks of true genuine disciples And it's it's for you and it's for me to be able to to look at our own selves and to examine ourselves this morning The goal is not to get you to doubt your faith The goal is not in some sense to try and undermine your confidence in your walk with the Lord But the goal is to cause you to genuinely look in the mirror and ask the question. Which crowd do I belong to? Do I genuinely know Christ how can I know that? Well, there are some markers that play out in this text, and the markers in this text are going to eliminate the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. It's going to expose them as the fakes, the frauds, the counterfeits. I pray that the, the, the principles that He lays out in this text will have the opposite effect on your life. That it will confirm that you belong to Him. So that when you walk away from here this morning, you'll have more confidence than you did when you came in. That you truly belong to Jesus. But I suspect in a crowd this size, there are some that are just like those ones that were in the crowd Jesus spoke to. Who don't measure up. For whom their profession of faith is, is surface and it's simple and it suffice to this point in your life, but it's not genuine saving faith. And if that's you this morning, I pray that upon walking through these criteria, you will cry out to Jesus and find your only hope in him. That that would be the result for you this morning. That unlike this crowd who walks away angry, that you would run to him and embrace him. So that's what we're after this morning. So I just want to give you these bullet points, these principles and quickly show you to them in the text, or show them to you in the text. Let's look at the first one. What is the first characteristic of true disciples that we see here? The first mark of a true disciple. Um, We see it in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Well, that's the first characteristic. Truly my disciples. Those ones who are truly his, as opposed to the ones who are not truly his, are those who abide in Christ. That's the first characteristic. It's the first mark. How do we know if we belong to him? Well, we know we belong to him if we abide in him. That's how we know we're truly his disciples. Abide in his word, he says. What does it mean to abide in his word? Well, the key word is abide. It's a word that means endure. It's a word that means persevere. It's a word that means continue. The indication here is this. Those who stick it out, those who stay with it, those who endure, those who stay with me, who remain connected to me, those are the ones who are truly my disciples. One of the ways that you you know the difference between the, the true and the false is the true abide. They stay with Christ. They don't walk away. They don't turn away from Him. They don't abandon their faith, never to return. And those who belong to Him, they abide. They stay. They endure. They continue with Him. They persevere. It becomes the part of their life that they don't walk away from. One of the saddest realities in the history of the Christian church is that it is literally littered with people who at some point in their lives have walked away from Christ. People who professed Christ at some point with their mouth, who attended church for some season of their life, who worshipped with God's people, who studied God's Word, maybe even prayed, maybe even taught a class here or there, who gave all the external appearances of belonging to Christ, but at some point something happened and they just walk away. They leave. They abandon Christ. Life gets hard. Their feelings get hurt. They get bored or distracted. They give in to temptation and they just walk away. They leave the faith. They go back to living for themselves. They go back to living for the world and they simply stop following Christ. That is a characteristic of those who are not truly his disciples. In First John chapter 2, he reiterates this thing. In verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were, what? Not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, what? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. Do you see what John's saying? We had a crowd. And some of them left. They went out from us like they were from us. But the fact that they walked away and left gave evidence to all of us that they really, what? They never belonged. They never belonged the fact that they left is the indication that they weren't genuine to begin with and that needs to become plain and John says this is one of the ways that it becomes plain a little later in John's gospel chapter 15 he says this verse 5 he gives this illustration on the vine you're the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers. And as branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Who are the ones who prove to be my disciples? Those who bear much fruit. And they bear much fruit only because they have abided in Christ. The vine and the branch it's a beautiful illustration, isn't it? I mean, you understand that. It makes sense to my simple mind. You snap a branch off from a vine, and what happens to it? It dies. It dies. It can't live. It can't survive. It can't bear fruit. It can do nothing. But the branch that abides in the vine, it lives. It thrives. It bears fruit. It proves that it belongs. That's the illustration Jesus is giving. So what does he have in mind when he says, abides in my word? Well, John Piper, I think, gets this exactly right. He says what Jesus is talking about when he says he who abides in my word is simply the person who abides in the sum of all that Jesus taught. What is the word uh, that he's talking about? Well, Jesus has been saying a lot of words, right? He's been preaching and teaching a lot of things. And everything that he says, for the most part, in some sense or another, points people back to what? Back to himself, his person. So to abide in his word is to abide in the sum of everything that he taught. And the sum of everything that he taught points to him. So it's easy for for John to then in in chapter 8 say, whoever abides in my word, and then in chapter 15, whoever abides in me, because saying one is the same as saying the other. To abide in Christ is to abide in him. It's to remain with him. It's to endure in him. It's to not give up. It's to not quit when it gets hard. It's to not walk away when you're challenged what it means to abide in him. It's to remain connected to him for life, for fruit. When other people walk away, the genuine believer, true faith, remains. It endures, it perseveres, it abides. And Jesus knows the hearts of all men. He knows the hearts of those in his crowd. And he knows exactly which ones are genuine and which are not. And it becomes evident because at the end of this thing, many of them walk away. They don't abide in him. And yet, there's a crowd that does. They stick. When everyone else walks away, they stay. When it's popular, they remain. When it's unpopular, they abide in Christ. When it's in vogue to walk with Jesus, they walk with Jesus. When it's not in vogue to walk with Jesus, they still walk with Jesus. When everybody around them denies Christ, they're the ones who still stand. That's what the kind of faith is that saves. It endures, it perseveres, it abides and so Jesus brings this up as the first characteristics. And, and so let me ask you this. That brings up a question. Can believers then fall away for a season? Can true believers, genuine believers, fall away for a season where it looks as though they're not abiding with Christ? What do you do with that? What do you do with people who, for some season in their life, they've walked with the Lord and they've connected to the church and they professed faith in Christ, and now, for some reason, they've, they've abandoned that for a season in their life? What do you do with that? What do you make of that? Well, you know what? The answer to the question is, I don't know what you can make of that. You don't know what you can make of that. In the moment, it doesn't matter what you make of it. The response of a believer to that should be the same. Call them to repentance and faith in Christ, Right? Because it doesn't matter if they were genuine believers who walked away in a season of apostasy and they need to be called to repentance and, and return to Christ, or if they're unbelievers who were you know, previously semi-attached to the church and walking away have proved themselves false, they still need the gospel and they still need to be called to repentance and faith in Christ. So at the end of the day, we don't have to try and sort that out. We do the same thing. Does that make sense? But I do want to say there is a sense in which believers who are genuine believers can fall away for a season. Maybe you've experienced that in your life something happens and you go through the season where your faith is just cold And you walk away But you know what happens to a genuine believer in that sense what happens? They come back and you come back because christ pursues you By the holy spirit. He convicts your heart of your sin and he makes you miserable until you cry out to him in repentance in return That's what happens And so how do we answer this and keep this balance right? Well, we say that this is what Jesus is saying. Those who abide in Him are truly His disciples. People who don't abide, who don't endure, who don't stay are not His disciples. And the way I think we sort that out is true disciples may walk away for a season, but God makes them miserable and eventually they return in repentance and faith back to Christ. They do not remain in that state unending, unapologetically for the long haul. When I run into someone who professes faith in Jesus who says that they're a Christian, but they're living in an enduring season of their life where they are not walking with the Lord, and they seem unfazed by that, I do not regard that person as a believer and the way that I navigate with them. At the end of the day, I'm not the judge. Jesus is. My only responsibility is how do I deal with that in their life? I give them the gospel and call them to faith and obedience to Christ. That's what you should do, I think, too. But it's the first characteristic true believers genuine believers abide in Christ They remain they endure they stay they don't walk away permanently What's the second one we see? Well, the second characteristic of true believers is this they hear they comprehend and they believe the truth They hear comprehend and believe the truth and we see this right at the beginning as well and jesus says in verse 32 and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free Jesus moves from the issue of endurance to the issue of truth And and see here's another characteristic genuine believers those who walk with the lord who know him They hear the truth. It makes sense to them. They comprehend it and they embrace it. They believe it They believe the truth Those who are false those who are fakes those who are counterfeits Either don't hear it or they hear it and they don't comprehend it properly or they hear it and they comprehend it And they refuse to believe it one of those three And that's the part of this crowd and jesus goes on to elaborate on this later in the conversation jump down to verse 43 through 47 at the end of this text This conversation heats up as you get to the end and jesus says why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word You're of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand for the truth. There's no truth in him. Go on down He's a liar But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. And he goes down and says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you don't hear them is because you don't know God. Do you see Jesus exposing the fraudulent faith of these people? He's saying, you know, I know that you're not real. It's not just that you're not going to abide, but it's also that you don't hear my word. You don't hear my word. When I speak the truth to you, you don't believe it. You reject it. You refuse to hear it. You refuse to embrace it. So why is it that these people, he says, don't hear and don't comprehend and don't believe the truth of his word? The reason they don't hear, comprehend and believe is because they are not born again. They're not born again. They don't belong to God. They are still in their sin. And when you're still in your sin and you don't belong to God, God is not your father. You have a different father. And who's that father identified here for this crowd? Did you get it? Satan. They're still obeying their father, Satan. And we get a great description of him, don't we? He's a liar. He does not stand on the truth. The truth is not in him. He's the father of lies. And that is the best description of Satan. If you want one, he is a, he is a compulsive, magnificent liar. He knows exactly how to, how to originate untruth. He knows how to take the truth and twist it and propagate it in a way that's untrue he originates truth he excuse me he originates untruth he takes the truth and he twists it he's master at that and every false religion and every false philosophy in the world originates with the father of lies satan and he has duped many a human being millions of human beings with his lies you can remember the first introduction we have to him in the garden of eden in the conversation with eve what is what is he doing in that whole conversation He's simply lying and twisting the truth. He's taking the truth of what God said and he's twerking it and tweaking it and turning it. And that's still what he does. He's the father of lies. He propagates lies and he uses our popular culture and he uses the media and he uses every venue at his disposal to propagate his lies and to twist the truth and to turn the truth upside down. And he gets people to believe it. And many, many, many believe it because ultimately he's their father. And they have no capacity for understanding, hearing, and comprehending the real truth. The Bible says unless you're born again, you belong to Satan. He's your father. Whether directly or indirectly, that's the case. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in their case, speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. He has that, that ability to do so because they're his children. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 36 and following, and Jesus, this is Jesus explaining that parable of the weeds and the wheat that we read earlier. The disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are who? The sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Who are those weeds among the wheat? They're sons of the evil one. Daughters of the evil one sown by the evil one In first John chapter 3 verse 8 John reiterates this issue. He says look whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil For the devil has been sinning from the beginning The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil Everyone who practices sinning belongs to the enemy Is a member of his family is under his influence and his authority and the only, and here's the problem. The problem with that is the Bible declares that all of us have what? Have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we come into this world as people who are sinners by nature and choice. We are born, if you will, into the enemy's family. And the only way to exit the family, and we can't divorce, can we? The only way to exit that family is to die and be born again into a new family. It's the only way. It's to die to our old self that's under his authority and power and to be born again. And the Bible says when a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ, he's born again. And something miraculous happens. We are adopted into God's family. Do you see that? We are are pulled by the power of Almighty God from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness. And we are put into the domain of the living Son of God. We are transferred from the family of Satan to the family of God we exchange one dad a bad one for another dad a good one that's what happens when you're born again you exchange fathers the bible says we can't serve two masters you'll hate one and love the other and people can't do that today you can't on the one hand you can't on the one hand claim to be a believer and follow your father satan and yet that's what many do that's what many in this crowd were doing. That Jesus is speaking the truth and they refuse to hear the truth and they refuse to believe the truth and they refuse to receive Him. They can't hear it, they can't comprehend it, and they can't embrace it because they don't belong to Him. They're not born again. They're not a part of His family. They need to be, but they're not. And when you and I run across people who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and yet we evaluate their lives and we find out that they don't hear the truth of God, that they can't comprehend it and make sense of it, and when they do hear it and they do comprehend it, they don't believe it and embrace it and commit to it. It's a sign that they're not true believers. It's a sign that they don't belong, that they're the frauds, the fakes. And when you look in the mirror, that's a question you ask of yourself. Do do I have a hunger for the Word of God? Do I want to hear God's Word? And when I hear it, does it make sense to me? Are my eyes open to understand it and to make sense of it? And when I understand it and make sense of it, is there, is there a desire in my heart to believe it and to embrace it and to commit myself to acting on it? If that's true of you, you know what that's a sign of? That you belong to Christ. It's a sign of a true disciple. That should affirm your faith. Let me give you the third one. Let me give you the third one. True believers experience true freedom. Verse 32 through 36. Listen. And you will know the truth, Jesus says, and the truth will set you free. The answer, we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you'll become free? And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. That is to say he's temporary. He doesn't endure The Son is a permanent part of the family. That is, He remains forever. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So we've moved from the issue of endurance to the issue of how do they respond to the truth. And we've moved now from the issue of how do we respond to the truth to the issue of freedom and slavery. See, this is another characteristic, another one of the ways that we dig deeper and try and sort out what's going on. Those who belong to Christ truly are set free and they experience his freedom. Those who do not belong to Christ remain enslaved. That's the point here. Well, what kind of slavery does he have in mind? Certainly, he's not talking about some sort of physical slavery. It doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity or nation of origin or anything like that, although the crowd initially doesn't seem to get it. What he's talking about is a very specific kind of slavery. It's a slavery to sin. That's what he's talking about. He tells us that because he says, talks about, I'll set you free and you won't be slaves anymore. And then he goes on to say, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he tells us what kind of slavery he's talking about. He's talking about a slavery to sin. And he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. One of the main effects of sinning is it draws us in and it captures us and we become its slave. And you know this, because the first time you sinned, it probably was offensive to you. But the second time, it's less offensive. And the third time, it's even easier. And by the fourth or fifth time, you hardly even notice, right? That's what sin does. It draws us in, and it captures us, and it enslaves us. And you know that, because there are particular sins that are enslaving to you. And you understand the power of sin to enslave you. You know that you're know that, 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 that you drawn in and you know that it's evil that you're doing and, and yet you can't seem to break free of it. You keep doing it over and over and over and over. There are two ways that sin enslaves people. It damns them in the future and it dominates them in the present. That's two things that sin does. It's two ways that it enslaves us. On the one hand, it damns us for the future. That is to say uh, the wages of sin is what? It's death. So people who sin are damned eternally. That is, if something doesn't happen to deal with the sin in their life, and they die, they leave this world, they are left to face the God of the universe, the creator against whom they rebelled, and they will face the due penalty for their sin, which is eternal damnation called, by Paul here, death. That is one of the effects of sin. It is one of the way it enslaves us. It damns us eternally. Apart from the supernatural work of Christ in our life, apart from being born again, we are enslaved in that way, but there's a second way that slave that sins enslaves us It is the way in which it dominates us It doesn't just damn us for the future, but it dominates us every day for the present It draws us in and it captures us and it holds us That's why in chapter 6 of romans paul says let don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions He's telling them to fight against that because it has the power to do so Once we sin, we become enslaved to it and we're driven to more sin. And apart from the outside help that only Jesus Christ can give, we're compelled to sin more. And we cannot resist its power and its magnetism on our own. The only solution to the current, present domination of sin in a human being's life is to die and be born again to Christ. It's the only solution. It's the only way to be free from the dominating power of sin. We live in a world of people who the Bible declares are sinners and whether they know it or not they are slaves to sin Oh, they think they're free They think they live their lives doing whatever they want to they wake up in the morning and they say I go where I want to go I do what I want to do and they live under this illusion of freedom, but the reality is it's an illusion It's one of Satan Satan's lies It's one of those satanic lies that he's propagated that you're really free when in fact you're a slave And that's how most people that you and I know operate They believe they're free. They believe they do whatever they want to do. They believe they're living their lives the captain of their own ship. And they don't realize that the reality is they are enslaved to sin. They are held by its power. They are completely dominated by it. Unless we're born again. Unless Christ does something for us. Unless he invades our life, the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life is what he said. And unless the truth invades our life and redeems us, unless the truth comes in and sets us free, we remain slaves to sin. And that's what he is saying to, to these folks. He understands what's going on. He said, look, you're slaves. You're slaves to sin, but I can set you free. And they are incredibly offended by that, aren't they? Did you see that? What do they say? I mean, they're incredulous. We're Abraham's offspring. What do you mean we're slaves? We've never been slaves. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, that's just nonsense, isn't it? Uh, Egypt, Philistines, Assyrians, the Babylonians, and right now the Romans. But they're not even thinking in those terms. They're thinking spiritually. They're actually thinking on the right terms here, aren't they? They're thinking spiritually because they know that they've been enslaved physically before. But what are they saying? They're declaring... We are not slaves to sin. We are not sinners. And what are they leaning on to base that fact? We're Abraham's children. We are Jewish. We are Abraham. We are children of the promise. How can you say that we are enslaved to sin? We are God's chosen people out of all the people of the world. We belong to God. We can't be slaves to sin. We are Abraham's children. They use this all the time. They refuse to recognize that they're sinners in need of a Savior. They refuse. They refuse to admit it and they trust in their good works. They trust in their religious deeds. They trust in their spiritual lineage. And they refuse to see that they're enslaved to sin. That's what they do. And here is Jesus offering to free them from the spiritual slavery. He's offering to free them. And they refuse. They refuse to admit they need it. You know, people often misunderstand freedom. Freedom is not the power to do whatever we want to do. You know that that's not what freedom is true freedom in a biblical sense It's not the power to do whatever you want to do and go wherever you want to go without any kind of restraint on your life That's not freedom in a biblical sense Freedom in a biblical sense is the power to resist sin and do what is right Don Carson says it this way true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please But it's the liberty to do what we ought and it's genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us that's the difference it's the freedom to obey it's the freedom to not live under that dominion dominating power of sin it's the freedom to do what is right and to obey and to enjoy doing that because it pleases you to please him that's what freedom is and jesus is offering this to those folks and they refuse to receive it they refuse to receive it because they refuse to admit that they're slaves to sin and you know what? We live in a world full of people the same way. They refuse to admit that they are sinners. They will lean on their ethnic heritage. They will lean on their religious deeds. They will lean on the faith of their parents. I grew up in a home and I always went to church. They will lean on anything in the world to not face up to the fact that they are enslaved to sin and need to be freed from it and can't be freed apart from Christ. It's the mark of a true believer. A true believer looks in the mirror and understands I am a slave to sin, and apart from Christ, apart from the work of Christ in my life, I have no hope of any sort of freedom. Number four, we'll wrap this up. Fourth category, a fourth criteria. Genuine believers live lives marked by obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. It's endurance. They endure, and it moves on from endurance um, to the other criteria that we've talked about here. Their freedom from sin. And it's not just freedom from sin, but it's obedience to Christ as well. And all throughout this text, Jesus is confronting them on this. They keep saying, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus continues to say to them, if you were Abraham's children, if you were true Jews, if you really belonged to Abraham and he were your father, you would what? You behave like Abraham behaved and Abraham obeyed God. The fact that you claim Abraham as your father, but you don't act like Abraham invalidates your claim that he's your father. Because if he really was your father, you'd act like your father. But you don't act like him because he's not your father. But you do act like your real father because your real father is Satan. And so you live a life of disobedience. I mean, that's pretty clear and simple, isn't it? Obedience to Christ is a clear mark that we know him, that we're genuine believers, that we walk with the Lord and not the fraudulent. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who is it that's his brother and sister and mother? The one who obeys, who does his will. John chapter 14, verse 15. Listen, if you love me, you will say this part with me. It's getting late here. You will keep my commandments. Did I not give you that one? You can't say it with me, can you? Sorry about that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Obedience is the issue. James chapter 2, James asks the question, what good is faith if it's not backed up by our deeds? What good is it to run around saying you have faith in God, but you don't back it up by the way it doesn't show up in the way you live your life? James says, that's no good. That's dead faith that can't save anybody. And John nails it down in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, get this, is a liar. Can it be more direct than that? You claim to know Jesus Christ, but you don't obey him in your life. You are a liar. And the only person you're fooling is yourself. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps my word, whoever obeys, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see, that's a category. Genuine believers those who really know the Lord who've been born again obedience becomes the pattern of their life Oh, they're not perfect. They don't get it right every single time There are still times when we struggle with sin There are still times when we battle the flesh and there are some days when we lose that battle There are days when we stumble and days when we fall, but the issue is not perfection The issue is the the general trajectory of our lives being one of obedience to Christ. You see that? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. No believer is perfect. But what Jesus is saying is the one who is the true believer desires to obey. He wants to obey. He lives to obey Christ. And when he disobeys Christ, when he gives into the flesh, when he gives into the temptation, he is overcome by conviction of that sin. He is broken over that sin and he's drawn to repentance and he wants to be walking in obedience to Christ. That is a characteristic of a genuine, true disciple of Christ. They desire to obey him. And if you look at the long haul of their life, you see a general trajectory of increasing obedience to Christ. Look back over the last five, ten years of your life. If you're here this morning, you claim to be a Christian. Can you look back over the last five years, the last ten years, the last however many years it's been since you've become a Christian? Can you look back and see in your life a general trajectory of increasing obedience to Christ? Do you see that? Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life where He has gradually been chipping away at the sinful habits in your life and gradually building into you habits of living righteously and obeying Him? Do you see that in your life? If you see that in your life, it should bolster your faith because it's the mark of a genuine believer. There's a general trajectory of obedience to Christ. You see that. When I see people who claim to be Christians, and they have lived in the same unbroken pattern of sin for years and years and years, decades maybe. No increasing in righteousness. No, no increasing obedience. Just kind of flatlined. It makes you stop and say, I wonder if they really know Christ. I wonder if they genuinely are the real deal. Are they the diamond or are they the diamond L? Because Jesus says the diamond wants to obey. And obedience becomes the pattern of their life. Last characteristic verse 41 and 42 They said to him we were not born of sexual immorality we have one father even god Jesus said to them if god were your father you would love me For I came from god and i'm here I came out of my own accord, but he sent me So if you can't get away with claiming abraham as your father the rug gets pulled out from under that You just got to go up a notch, right? Well fine god is our father. That's what you do when you've lost the argument, Right well, fine. God is my father. And Jesus clears that up right right quick, doesn't he? No, no, no. If God were your father, he would what? He would love me. That's the final mark of a true believer. They love Jesus. They love Jesus. There is a heart affection for Christ that is indescribable. They love him. When you boil down what Christianity is at, at the bottom line, a Christian is a person who loves jesus christ and everything else that marks their life and their faith flows out of a love for him they love him they've 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 seen him for who he is the god of the universe who has come to their rescue who has died in their place who has endured the wrath of god for their sin on their behalf rescued them from the, the 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 domination and damnation of sin and because of that they are drawn to him and they love him do you remember at the end of Uh, After the resurrection after 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 jesus had been crucified and peter denied him three times and he'd gone back He'd abandoned the ministry and he'd gone back to fishing. Do you remember what jesus does after the resurrection? He appears By the sea of galilee and he calls peter and the disciples to him and, and they have a meal and Jesus he begins this conversation with Peter. And it's a conversation meant to restore him to his faith and to restore him to the ministry. And you know what the whole gist of that conversation was? Jesus asked him one question. And he asked it to him three times. And what's the question? Peter, do you love me? Not Peter, did you really blow it? Not Peter, what were you thinking? Not Peter, what's up with that? Peter, here's what I want to know. Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, your works don't show it. You denied me. I get that. But I want to know what's going on in your heart. Do you in your heart love me? And Peter's answer is, you know what? I do. And Jesus says, all right, go feed my sheep. Go th- I'll, I'll take it on that basis. Go feed my sheep. And at the end of the day, that's a mark of a genuine believer. They love Jesus Christ. They obey Him because they love Him, not because they have to. They endure when everybody else falls away because they love Christ more than they love everybody else, more than they even love their own lives. They love Jesus. So there's some categories, and there's some characteristics. And I wondered this morning, will you examine yourself? Will you? Will you look at that list? Can you put the the list up there for me, Ben? Let's just wrap this up by looking at that list together, that list of characteristics. Do those characteristics mark your life be honest this morning Don't fool yourself. Don't try to fool anybody else because no one else matters Look in the mirror and ask yourself. Is that me? Do I have an abiding faith in Christ? Do I love the truth of God and I hear it and I believe it and I embrace it? Have I experienced what it means to be free from the damnation and the domination of sin in my life? Have I seen that play out in my life? Has the general trajectory of my life been one of obedience to Christ? And at the end of the day, do I love Jesus? I pray this morning that you pass the test. That The result of that is that you walk away from here saying, yes, I know Christ, because I see these things in my life right now. Not something in the past, not 20 years ago, but today I see these things going on. And I wonder if there are some here who this morning examined themselves by these criteria. They don't pass the test that's you, it's a good thing that you've examined yourself this morning because you're alive and you're breathing. And in this very moment, you can run to Jesus and be saved. You can fall before him confessing yourself, confessing that you are a sinner who's enslaved to sin. And your only hope is that he would save you. If you'll do that this morning, he will. And you'll see all of these things begin to play out in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open the eyes our hearts this morning, that we would see the reality of who we are before you. Not, not, the, not the image that we put out for everybody else to see, that we wouldn't see the facade that we put up on a Sunday morning that other people look at, but that we would see ourselves as you see us, the reality. Help us to put our own selves to the test. And I pray, O Lord, that we pass it this morning and walk away from here rejoicing in you and what you've done in our lives and where we stand with you, firm in our faith. But for that man or for that woman who's here this morning, who's put themselves through the test and they know, they know, nobody else around them knows, but they know, Lord, that they don't pass the test. They're like that crowd that you spoke to on that day. There's some surface level of belief. That's what's brought them here today. But at the end of the day, they don't belong to you and they know it. I pray that in this moment they would reach out to you and embrace you. That they would be born again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.